This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. everybody. Hello, it's nice to have you here. Welcome to CIIS. Welcome, Chris. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you, Gisela. It's lovely to be here. Yes, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, especially The Living Classroom has been a book that is very dear to me and has influenced my work a lot as you talk so well about uh, integral pedagogy. And it's reading the LSD and the mind of the universe gave me an inside scope to how now that you know book, where it came from yes yeah. and so it's it's <laughs> wonderful to yeah. know you that closely as this is such an intimate book where you really talk about such deep uh, themes and so I feel very honored to be here today to have your have read this work and have your books as a reference Thank you, Gisela. Yeah, welcome. Um, let's start out by acknowledging this deep endeavor, this yeah. unusual task that you took 20 years to complete by uh, engaging in 73 LSD deep journeys. And as a starting point, uh, what drove you into this long journey of the psyche and the cosmos and the motivation to publish this book now? Well, I just finished graduate school. You know, I basically was publishing pieces of my dissertation. I was looking for, for the next area of research I wanted to work in. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was in my Saturn return. <laughs> and I met Stan Groff's book, and I read that life-changing book, Realms of the Human Unconscious. And as soon as I read that book, I knew, I mean, I was not a clinician. I'm not a clinician. I was trained in philosophy of religion. And as soon as I read that book, I said, okay, that changes everything. This is a whole new, different methodology for doing philosophy of consciousness, philosophy of religion. And I knew I needed to get into this. And uh, so I made the decision uh, to do it, and that meant going underground. And so I divided my life into two tracks. In my uh, daytime job, I was a teacher of philosophy of religious studies in an Ohio university. And in my nighttime job, I began this process of doing deep psychedelic work because if you're going to extract the philosophical value of these states, well, first you have to do the work. You've really got to get into it and go deep. And I ended up choosing a methodology that I don't recommend. Uh, I chose to work with high doses of LSD. So I did three medium-level doses of sessions, and then I did... 70 high-dose sessions, but for convenience, I always say to 73 high-dose sessions. I worked at 500 to 600 micrograms consistently in every session for 20 years. I did four years of work. I stopped for six years, and then I did 10 years of very intense work. Mm. And to me, it was about exploring the, these, this drug's capacity to hypersensitize me to the deepest levels of my own mind, and by entering consciously into those deep levels of my own mind, to enter into the mind of the universe itself, to be drawn into, layer by layer, into the consciousness which is the underlying, con as I experienced it, the underlying consciousness of the universe itself. And what philosopher could turn down that opportunity? Yes. So here we are having a conversation between a, a, a psychotherapist and a philosopher. Yeah. So we know that psychedelics have been evolving a lot into the psychology field, yeah. into the research and mental health. Yeah. And they are called entheogens, medicine, sacred yeah. ways in which we engage the psyche for personal growth, for the healing of trauma, for support at the end of life. There's a lot of expansion. And so I would like to 
ask you to clarify a little bit of that for the audience, the difference between psycholytic therapy, psychedelic therapy, and psychedelic exploration, which is what yeah. you did. Yeah. My work, of course, is deeply influenced and is structured around Stan Groff's work. And in Stan Groff's work, he clearly differentiates between low-dose psycholytic work and high-dose psychedelic work. The low-dose psychedelic work was where you're peeling away the psyche layer by layer, kind of taking it down like layers of an onion, working through psychodynamic issues, uh, perinatal issues, moving into transpersonal issues. The psychedelic or high-dose work that they did in the early years was restricted to three. They were trying to trigger near-death episode experiences or something approximating a near-death episode experience for people who were terminally ill. And they were restricted methodologically to only three sessions in this context. And so I thought, okay, well, if you could do it safely three times, you could do it safely more than three times. So the method was strictly uh, you know, a protocol, a, a, a therapeutic protocol that Stan outlines in great detail in LSD psychotherapy. So each session was totally isolated. I was isolated, protected. I always had a sitter. My sitter for all 20 years of work was my wife, who is a clinical psychologist. Uh, so the same sitter, same method, same medicine, same dose, same protocol, applied in a very kind of conscientious, careful manner to not only go out and explore deeply, but then to capture as much as possible because the capturing process is a critical part of the cycle of learning. So uh, what I found in the beginning, I thought I was just doing an extended series of psychedelic therapy, of high-dose work. But when I got to the end and I was looking over the entire journey, I realized that something was, had been going on which is different than psychedelic therapy as it's conventionally discussed. And I began to realize I had to come up with a different uh, way of describing this work, so I describe it as cosmological exploration. To me, there's sort of three levels of working with psychedelics. There's the therapeutic level, which is where our attention is focused on mostly today, and that's really, really important that we do that thoroughly and do it well so that we can bring these substances back into uh, our culture back into our, our usage. The second level is sort of spiritual, where you kind of are reaching, I think it's the spiritual which facilitates the therapeutic healing, but there is a spiritual dimension where you're opening up to some of the deeper textures of the universe and of your own being. Cosmological, and, and that might lead to something like classical spiritual awakening or classical enlightenment. Cosmological exploration is something different. Cosmological exploration, in my experience, is just pushing it as, I mean, if you have a method and you can dissolve your mind into these deeper patterns uh, of consciousness, how far can you take that? How far can you go? What can you learn? And here the goal is not to sort of wake up spiritually, not to have an experience which you can come back and stabilize as an awakened state, uh, but to go to press the limits of how far human consciousness can be taken to the extremes in time, in space, in the universe itself. What can we learn about the universe? As a philosopher trained, that's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know what makes the whole system tick. I wanted to know the traditional type of questions that philosophers have been asking for thousands of years. And I hope that we'll get to some of that tonight. So. But before we go there, yeah. I want to just take a moment to, um, as you had these 73 sessions facilitated, so while these were not psychologically oriented sessions or spiritually oriented per se, because you were really interested in the philosophical and cosmological aspect of the psychedelic exploration, you did use the methodology that we know to be a methodology that induces, yeah. supports a process like yes. that. So you had always your sessions in the morning. You always had your wife as a sitter. You had a certain type of music. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you went about it. You prepared yourself before and after. Yeah. And so I want to just yeah. name that. And the other thing that I want to name is 
your wife's participation in this research. So I guess I want to take a moment to honor all the women mm-hmm. who contribute uh, today and have always contributed to the development yeah. of the field of psychedelics, yes. whether they have been in the foreground or in the background. Yeah. Um, I just want to take a moment uh, to honor the female yeah. participants Absolutely, in this endeavor. Absolutely, because I mean, we've run into the same trap with psychedelic research that most of the early work was is done by men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the psychological results or some of the the psychedelic results are kind of a little different played around in a male psyche than they are in a female psyche. So we run into some of the same issues. Yeah. But in terms of method, I, I want to emphasize the same thing. Totally internally focused, eye shades, very carefully curated list, everything. Re- and, and when you work with high doses of LSD, you're dealing with states which have such enormous energetic consequences. They, they impact the body so deeply that the deeper I went into this, the longer I had to spend preparing for a session and the longer I had to spend debriefing the session just physiologically to prepare my entire psychophysical system for the tidal waves of energy that I would be riding during the day of the session. I would change my diet. I was always working with yoga and meditation and I would do specific practices in the days leading up to a session and specific practices in the days after a session just to be able to manage that crescendo that came through during the session itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that. In the book, you you mentioned that in order to bring these temporary states that you go into in such sessions, you need to prepare. And you, you mentioned courage and grounding. Yeah. Um, so some of the ways in which you... Well, the tricky part of working with psychedelic states, of course, is they're temporary. And that's why the methodological chapter in the book I call the path of temporary immersion. We always have to remind ourselves that this particular path is a path of temporary immersion. It's not an abiding path. It's not a path of, of, of abiding in presence in a continual 24-7 kind of way. You enter into temporary conditions and you have to, you have to sort of resign yourself and learn how to work with temporary conditions in order to extract maximum leverage on your psychological condition. So how do we extract from temporary states something which lends itself to a permanent shift in consciousness? And I found that for me, it comes down to two principles. Courage. We must have the courage to confront whatever shadow arises, whatever difficulties and courage. We have to be able to stay with it and take it all the way down to the bottom. And the second is grounding. And grounding has a number of components. But if, if you don't really ground strongly and deeply, and this has physical components, psychological components, mental components, social components. If you don't ground strongly, then you can have very, very deep and moving experiences. But in the end, they don't amount to very much. They don't stick very much. They don't last. So the grounding is really critical for maximizing the value. So preparation, courage, and then really attending to the grounding. Yeah, and I guess we will be talking about in different ways the piece around integration, right? Because it's such an important, as you open yourself to such deep spaces and have these, what it's been called by many as a mystical experience or a spiritual encounter, um, ways in which your mind, your body, your soul have this these transformations and then how do you bring those back and how do you integrate that in having a day-to-day life um, and yeah. the importance of of integration yeah do you want to say something about that now I know that we're gonna we're take gonna that. talk about that more because that's yeah I found yeah that's kind of tricky but um, for me I mean look I'm a university professor to me I would have these weekends about I was working on average about five sessions a year, okay? So I was teaching five days a week. I had children to take care of. My family and my children were my ground that kind of kept me sinking in close and deep to the earth. So wherever I was on Saturday morning, however deep I was on Saturday morning, on Monday morning, I was back in the classroom. And over and over again, that that... Uh, kind of a lifestyle of practicality, a lifestyle of being with people and having responsibilities in the world, 
in the beginning, it was just like, oh. in the beginning, it didn't seem like a big deal. But over the years, I began to appreciate how that grounding really was incredibly important to help me manage the scale of the experiences that I was writing in the deep years, in the deep work. Yeah, so if we begin to talk about the deep work, you have many of these topics. And, you know, I want to have a little bit of an overview and themes that came out of this 20-year trajectory. One of them that you started out in the first few years is this theme of death and rebirth. As we know in transpersonal psychology and psychedelic research, that is always being talked about as an important aspect of the work. How was that for you? To me, uh, death and rebirth is the essence of the work. Uh, Just when you open your consciousness, you reach as far as your ordinary consciousness can reach. And if your consciousness is going to reach beyond that, you have to challenge the limits that hold your consciousness in its earlier form. So death and rebirth is the, the nature of the cycle. What I found was that death and rebirth isn't something that happens only one time. You don't simply go through ego death and then enter into transpersonal reality. That the universe has many, many levels to it. And as you go into deeper levels, death and rebirth is part of a cycle. It's just a, it's a, a process that when you die at one level, you are reborn into another level. You stabilize your consciousness at that level over a period of sessions, at least in my experience, and and it's just my experience. This is not normative for anyone else, but in my experience, my consciousness would stabilize at a level, reach the edge of that level, begin to push the boundaries of that level, and I would go through another death and rebirth process, and I'd be catapulted into yet another level, and I'd stabilize at that level through years of work, push the boundaries of that level, and go into another And at the end, when I was adding up kind of what this overall trajectory was, I counted essentially five major cycles of death and rebirth and five levels of consciousness that I became operational. And I think of them as platforms of experience. And one of them concerned personal mind. And that's really where ego death takes place, which is where most much of the discussion takes place. But for me, it went on into collective mind archetypal mind, one mind, or causal oneness, and then the diamond luminosity. And each of those tiers of consciousness have distinct qualities, distinct patterns. It's kind of like the distinct laws of physics. And each of them requires learning how to stabilize consciousness in that domain, learn the rules of that domain, and become clear so that you can remember your experiences in that domain. Because when you break into a new level of consciousness, often, for me, when you first break into a new level of consciousness, you can't remember all of it. It's just, it's so foreign. It's, the rules are just so different. But if you go back again and again and again, your, your consciousness stabilizes at that level. You basically go through a series of purification processes, clarification processes, where you begin to be able to hold in your awareness conscious awareness of states of consciousness which previously you couldn't hold on to. You have to work at it to be able to stabilize consciousness at that level so that you become fully operational at that level. Once you're fully operational at that level, then you expand your repertoire at that level. When you go into another level, you have to start the whole process all over again. You, you get into the new territory where you don't know the rules and you have to learn the rules, and you have to stabilize consciousness at that level. The other thing I found is that each step deeper into conscious, into a deeper level of consciousness, is a step into a higher level of energy. This is a well-recognized principle in spiritual traditions. So you, you literally have to stabilize your entire psychophysical system to manage the level at, at that particular level of energy, if you're going to maintain coherent consciousness at that level. Yeah. It's just beautiful as you speak about the different levels, tiers of consciousness, and how for such profound experiences that are 
ineffable, you have words for it and you have a whole theory on it. So it's admirable. So let's talk about some of these layers as you peel the personal one and the cycles of the death uh, and rebirth of the ego, you move into what you call in the book, the ocean of suffering, which is that collective mind, the collective suffering. And you got in touch with a lot of uh, experiences and pain that were not necessarily your own, but they were present in the collective. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. In the early stages of the work, working at the personal mind level, there's a the, going through the levels that stand. And, and once again, this is this is just how it unfolded for me. Because consciousness is holographically integrated at all at always, you can touch into these different levels early on. I mean, you, you this idea of the progressive entering of consciousness is an oversimplification, but for me it's been a generally true principle. But other people may have different experiences. They might jump into different levels and bounce around through different ways. In my experience, it basically peeled off in layers. And the personal, the first layer had to do with basically shedding the skin of your body, mind, ego, going through the perinatal process, going through reliving your birth experience, going through that existential crisis, and then going through uh, a process that just explodes your physical identity, ego death. But when I went through that process, what happened then is that I and back up. For me, every session has two phases. There's a purifying stage and, a, and an ecstatic phase. You go through the purifying stage, let it carry you as far as you can take it. It takes you to a culmination. You go through a, transfer, a, a transition, and then the rest of the session is spent usually in, ecstatic, in an ecstatic state. When I went into the purifying stage after ego death, I began to go into layers and layers and layers of just terrible, terrible suffering. And it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal to me. It was collective. It involved thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people eventually, and centuries and centuries, thousands of years of time. And eventually I came to understand that what I was tapping, what I was entering into was literally some dimension of the collective unconscious, which is storing the unresolved pain of human history, all the wars we've fought, all the terrible things that we've done to to each other. This trauma, to the extent that it's not fully integrated and reconciled before the end of one's life, all that trauma gets stored not only in our individual psyche, but it gets stored in our collective psyche. And see, when I started this work, I had a model of individual transformation. I thought that's why I was doing this work, to individually transform my individual psyche. But that fell away because I found that after about two and a half years, the next several years of work, it just was all collective. It was about working to somehow impact a kind of collective healing by taking on or at least exposing yourself into and a willingness to engage vast tracts of collective suffering. So I came to call it the ocean of suffering, and I found it to be a systematic, just systematically getting deeper and deeper and deeper. On the ecstatic side of the experiences, I was having... Well, one of the chapters is called Deep Time in the Soul, where I experienced my entire life beginning to end as simultaneously present. Just time dissolved my entire life from all the moments of my life were present as a simultaneously whole. And I went into that for an entire year over and over and over again experiencing this domain. At the end this at the end of four years of my work, I stopped my work, and I stopped my work right in the middle of the ocean of suffering work. And I stopped for six years. And so I did a lot of things in those six years. I had children, two more children, I wrote a book, and I moved up the academic ladder and, and all these things. Six years later, when I resumed again, the ocean of suffering began exactly where it stopped when I had stopped before. Different time of life, different expectations, different astrological conditions, and yet it began exactly where it stopped, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and deepened for another year. 
On the ecstatic side, when I'd go into the ecstatic teaching, I went into this chapter that I call initiation in the universe. I was basically taken into a series of systematic initiations into, it was like cosmology 101. It was, it was how the universe is put together in certain fundamental ways. The ocean of suffering eventually culminated at the end of two years, and there was kind of an orgy of the ocean of suffering, and then I was spun into transpersonal, I mean, excuse me, archetypal consciousness. So to me, there's a therapy that happens at the personal level and a therapy then that happens at the collective level, and then you go into yet still more stages of consciousness where therapeutic paradigms sort of fall away. It becomes more of a shamanic initiation. It becomes, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's never, the. it never, when I say shamanic initiation, it's never purely personal. It's never working on such a small scale as simply something that serves your personal edification or your personal development. Always, uh, in all of the work, all the way through, there was always a collective dimension. There was always a way in which I was doing this for myself, but the universe wasn't interested in myself. <laughs> the universe is interested in the species. And therefore, if you're open to it and turn, let your, turn your work over to it, the universe will use your work in order to gain leverage on what it's concerned with. And what it is concerned with is the transformation and awakening of the entire species. It's beautiful. Yeah, so, that's so out of that ocean of suffering and that collective work and the importance of engaging with that, not only on an individual psychological level, but in a process of awakening, of getting in touch with the suffering of the world and, and experiencing that, managing that. And by being in that, there is something that happens that you give back to because the healing of oneself also gets translated back into the universe from what you're saying. So you get in touch with that pain and it's not an individual pain, but it touches on your pain. And then there is a way in which that gets fed back into the universe. So in, in that you move into the tier of archetypal work. And um, how did you find that that concept and compared to the Jungian um, archetypal concept um, in this idea that perhaps there is this dynamic um, and energy levels. And so how was your work on, on that level with the archetype? This is another tier of consciousness. A couple of things. One is I found when I, when I made the shift after the ocean of suffering work, when I was catapulted into archetypal reality, what I, what I took to be archetypal reality, there's a huge escalation in the energy demands. It took a lot of work to stabilize this transition into a completely different energetic platform. So it just was a huge jump. It took it took a year just to to stabilize at that at that level. And basically, I'd say all the work of the art. And I went through this in very quick. I mean, I I just got glimpses. It's not in any way an exhaustive description. I went through this process in eleven sessions, and it all divided between two different levels of archetypal reality. One level is is what you might call the Platonic level. And another level is what you might call the Jungian level. At the platonic level, I basically was experiencing something that seemed to correspond to Plato's description of that reality, that there is a reality behind physical reality, which is a primary reality, and not in time-space is a secondary reality. Uh, that's one of the sort of unnerving things, because every time I'd go into this space, I always had the sensation that I was entering a, a domain that was more real than time and space is real. But what I experienced in that domain did not match Plato's description of what I was expecting maybe I would experience. Plato describes archetypes in terms of un universal ideals or ideas in the mind of a, of a transcendent infinity an unchanging transcendence. So they're static. 
I experienced archetypes to be dynamic, to be living entities, just and changing and evolving, but moving so over a very, very long time frame and moving much more slowly than the speed at which things change inside time and space, but living dynamic and impossible for me to conceptualize. When I encountered these realities, they were so huge, they were so big and so different from anything we know inside time and space, literally my mind could not wrap itself around them. I ex visually, I experienced them as something approximating galaxies, but I think that was just the best my mind could do to put an image around what I was experiencing, just vast, something on the order of billions of light years across. Uh, at the Jungian level, I dropped into many experiences of the collective unconscious, which kind of, for me, affirmed Jung's core insight that all of our individual psyches arise out of the soup of the collective unconscious. And the collective unconscious is a matrix that informs and sustains all of our individual experiences at every level. However, what I experienced did not correlate with Jung's description of the archetypes. I did not experience mother, father, child, trickster, the classic archetypes that Jung described. And I'm not saying that those aren't part of the, archety are the archetypes, it's just not how I experienced it. What I experienced was repeated immersion in our species as a single organism, as a living organism. And I was taken through a series of experiences of how our minds are all nodal points within the mind of the species. And even our bodies are nodal points within the bodies of a species. And I had many experiences of how our species works so that all of our individual lives, physically and psychologically, are cells within the organ tissue of the species. So it's just a lot of A, B, C, D teaching about and experiencing about how we live as a species, which informs how we live as individuals. And that this intelligence doesn't compromise our individuality, but it's just how the universe works at a deeper level. It's like the quantum reality, which is underneath the atomic reality. The collective level, the, 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 the Jungian level of archetypes is a deeper manifestation of consciousness underneath our individual awareness. And so I, I downloaded a lot of information about how our species is organized at that level. And I think I was given a lot of these visions in order to prepare me for the lesson that was still to come, and that is the birth of the diamond soul. Yes, we're getting uh, and there. And the birth of the future human. Yeah. We're getting there in a minute, but it's yeah. still on the archetype and that yeah. dynamic yeah. piece as you differentiate from Jung's definition. Did you find any resonance with Sheldrake's work there? Oh, yeah. Sheldrake, I found Sheldrake's work very uh, compatible with my own psychedelic experience, and Rupert and I have had conversations about this. He's just, and uh, because one of the things I love about Rupert's work is that he has an appreciation of morphogenetic fields and, and species mind, but it's not static, the way Jung's tended to be static. For, for Rupert, it's dynamic, and it changes over time. It grows. And that was very much my experience, too. So I found a lot of overlap between Sheldrake's description and, and my own experience in this domain. Wonderful. I think these, these uh, colleagues and these uh, wonderful souls along the way that, you know, provided a fertile soil for you to find resonance with, as you mentioned, Groff also with, you know, as you were describing some of your processes with um, the suffering. Uh, I was thinking about his theory of, of the basic perinatal matrices and how he talks about the, the need to complete certain cycles. And if those cycles are not completed, then you can't move on to a next cycle. And at some point, I remember reading that it may take 10 to 100 sessions and so that that cycle is not completed at just one time and i think you have engaged in that process very deeply so i imagine it being very comforting to have had Stungroff's theory developed to provide you know a, a territory yeah. for you stan's work was essential to give me the a fundamental map of some of the territory 
But the most important thing I got from Stan, besides this map and, and tremendous respect for the intellectual power of his paradigm, and is what you know, he integrated so much research into it. But what personally the most valuable thing Stan gave me was an absolute trust in the process. You can absolutely surrender yourself no matter how terrible it gets, no matter how unknown it is, no matter how you just can't comprehend it. And you may not be able to comprehend it for many, many sessions. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse or something, something, something. But if you trust, but you can surrender to that process. It'll break you down. It'll kill you. It'll vaporize you. It'll break you into it. But ultimately, It'll take you into a, a deeper level and a deeper intimacy with the universe itself. Absolute trust, absolute surrender, and it's never, ever let me down. And that was a great gift from Stan. Wonderful. Yeah. And so from the archetypal level, we move into the benediction of blessings and yeah. the birth of the future human. And in that, you talk about the diamond soul. You talk about oneness. Yeah. You want to get into that? Well, let me see. How much time do we have? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into the deep territory here. After spending about a year and a half in uh, 11 sessions in the archetypal reality, archetypal domain, I was spun into a year of just one blessing after another. I, I entered uh, what Stan would call causal reality, uh, causal oneness. I entered into I entered into a domain where uh, the universe does not function in parts. The universe has parts. But the fundamental framework is it's living. It's a single living organism. See, when at the physical level, we all have a lot of parts. When you move into the subtle domain, the subtle level, you move into bigger parts, archetypal parts. You know, bigger beings, larger dimensions. But they're still parts. You're, when you're in archetypal reality, you're still in a world which is functioning in parts. But when you enter causal reality, parts disappear. The fluid is there, the, 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 the content of life is there, but it's like you enter completely into the divine's experience of life, so that the diversity of life is experienced as a, a living singularity, so that there is diversity of form, color, expression, but there is no sense of separate self. There is just the, the world is moving as one. And the logic of one is different than the logic of a world in pieces, even when it's archetypal pieces. It's just a, it's a different platform. So in the book, I described four experiences from that year. And one of the experiences was a deep experience of shunyata, of emptiness, you know, total selflessness, no self in me, no self anywhere else in the universe. Is total transparency. Another experience was uh, the primal void, just being dissolved into uh, Satchitananda, the primal void underlying manifest reality. Another experience was an experience of extraordinary cosmic love, because love is, is the emotion, if you will, of oneness. So being overwhelmed by the love that the universe has for itself. And then one of the experiences was the birth of the diamond soul, which, boy, if I get into that one, we'll be here all night. But it took me into an experience that, and of course, I had written my book on reincarnation already, so I had an understanding of basic reincarnational dynamics. But this gave me a deeper understanding of where reincarnation is taking us individually and as a species. It 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 took me into a very carefully constructed initiation into the end game, if you will, of reincarnation, where it's taking us. And in short, I think the process is not just simply improving us a little bit by little bit, one lifetime at lifetime, new skills, new depth of compassion, new this and that layer by layer, but sooner or later, 
all these lives that we've been living through all of this time, sooner or later, all those lives, and this is what happened to me in the session, they fuse. And when, when they fused, in my experience, there was, they, there was an explosion of energy which lifted my consciousness into a completely different tier of consciousness. It wasn't simply being a better human being. It was being a different human being. It's a totally different way of experiencing. And I think what happened was all the lives, sooner or later, and I think this is an evolutionary trajectory of the human species, in the process of polishing, polishing, learning, growing, so on and so forth, lifetime by lifetime, that the past life therapists are mapping out for us. We can go into those processes in great detail. Sooner or later, a maturation takes place when all those pieces come together, are integrated, reconciled, and merge into a higher order of consciousness, which becomes the new baseline. That's what I call the birth of the diamond soul, or simply the birth of the soul inside time and space, not out not outside time and space, but inside time and space. And that's what I think is happening in a larger evolutionary step. We are evolving to the point where sooner or later, gradually or suddenly, the soul is waking up inside time and space. And when that happens, everything changes. Because when that happens, then we are carrying our full history as a conscious awareness, not necessarily all the details and whatnot, but the full kind of sum total, we carry it, and we carry it with an awareness of all the other persons that we've been growing with for thousands and thousands of years. So there's an exponential increase in compassion, and there's an exponential increase in the transparency to the cosmic mind. Because when, when the receiver, in a sense, is, is operating at a much higher level of power, the ability to commune consciously with the creative intelligence of the universe is augmented. And therefore, there's a much greater... It's a, a, so there's a, a maturing of self, a deepening of compassion, and an opening to uh, a greater transparency to the, collect, the cosmic intelligence. And I think that's where we're going. Yeah. So we're going to an evolutionary. And so in, in the details here, I'm going to kind of come back and I hope that we can unpack because there's a lot of beautiful and complex things that you're saying. So the piece around reincarnation and the piece around revisiting and having access to soul knowledge, to connection to oneself in other lifetimes and to connection to other beings as part of that community. And so there is a sense of us being one as we move from one life to another where we don't. And so I was wondering about the, the, the role of memory there. And when you go into these deep places and you have access to some of that memory, to some of that download, how, how, how is that? How do you engage with those memories? Well, when I was doing that six-year hiatus, I did about three years of past life therapy work using hypnotherapy with a colleague and exploring those memories. <clears throat> I experienced a number of former lives in my psychedelic work. And maybe in the beginning, it sounds very exotic and it sounds kind of unusual and we have to go through all sorts of gymnastics even to conceptualize the whole process. But the more experience you have with it, it just gets simpler and simpler and easier and easier. Our mind is not does our mind is much older than our body. Our psyche is much, much older than our physical lifetime. It's very simple. It's just the learning the learning process takes place over thousands and tens of thousands of years. It works in incremental stages. But we die, we return to our larger consciousness, we're born, we concentrate in the next class. Everything's get tight and small and focused. We die, we take this big breather, big gulp, we we're, we're born, we get small. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, large, small, large, small. Just keep that up for 100,000 years. It's the most natural thing in the world. We simply, to become... A fully mature human being takes time. It takes time. Uh, with that, I think about 
the concept of an old soul and a young soul, right? As there's time and there's relative time in that too. And so different spectrum and different manifestations and different ways in which the soul has been worked through or not. Yeah. yeah? Would and you agree? I do. And I think we go from young soul to old soul to complete soul. The complete soul is when all of our lives have been, we've worked out all of our unfinished business, you know, we've dealt with all of that, we've integrated that, we're integrating all of the talents, but fundamentally when that, when a whole soul emerges, a complete soul emerges, then we're talking, we've entered a different arena. We're into a different track. So another thing that I was thinking in terms of that track or that arena or that idea of us evolving, it's the difference between um, a state in which one can get through, let's say, a psychedelic journey and um, and then stages. So that would be more around the idea of spiritual development. And so would you say something about that? So the difference between somebody who has, you know, years and years, let's say a monk who meditates and prayers and has a, such an intense spiritual practice, um, you know, and how that evolution, how does that evolution of consciousness and those tiers of consciousness are developed through time and practice versus, you know, somebody listening to you here tonight and thinking, oh, oh. I am going to get 500 uh, dose of LSD and please, I'm going to... Please don't to, do that, people. And I'm going to feel all of that. So that would be a state and not necessarily a stage of development. Would you elaborate on that? The distinction between states and stages is absolutely critical to understand the larger trajectory of spiritual evolution. The tricky question then becomes, how can we use states to facilitate shifts and stages? And that's where the courage and grounding comes in. How can we use temporary states, knowing that they're temporary, to facilitate our own individual and collective evolution. And that, that's, a, that's a really challenging issue. I think that while my experiences, I could not come back and stabilize many of these experiences in my ordinary consciousness very quickly, but I think what happens is these experiences that we have, these states that we have, begin to act as seed catalysts. They begin to act as strange attractors. So they can accelerate our developmental growth, not in a simple, quick way, but in a slow trajectory, they can, they can change the arc of our evolutionary development. I mean, to me, if you want to work in, in, in temporary states of this sort, it's really, really important to have an established spiritual practice, a daily practice. And so my rule of thumb is the deeper you're going in any psychedelic state, the stronger and more and the stronger and more stable your temper your daily practice should be. Uh, it's just absolutely essential for lots of reasons. And it, and the monks when they're doing their their practice and, and all honor to those who enter these domains through, you might say the slow bake methods, the stabilized method. You know, all honor to the great ones. Uh, But I think if we do our work well, if we enter cleanly, if we do our homework and we enter with radical commitment and a deep commitment to retention, to bringing back and integrating that work, it does change the trajectory of our lives. Now, personally, at the end of my journey, in one of my meditations, the universe said to me, Spirit said, 20 years in, 20 years out. Meaning it would take 20 years for me to integrate 20 years of psychedelic work. When I was writing the book, I was coming up on that 20 years. And I was thinking, you know, that might have been a little optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I think in, in some ways it'll take more than one lifetime. For me to it, because you're not integrating these experiences into your life, you're integrating your life into these realities. You can't integrate the infinite into the finite. The only thing you can do is integrate the finite into the infinite. 
So it's not a matter of integrating these experiences into my small being. It's a matter of making my small being increasingly available to, transparent to, living the truth of this larger reality. And that's a, that is the true work of spiritual work. So I think of psychedelics certainly not as an easy spiritual path. In fact, just the opposite. My concern about psychedelics, when they're, particularly if you're working with high doses, is that it becomes so intense, so fast, it can, move, it can be too fast and too intense. You really have to be careful there. So it's not an easy path. It's a hard path, but it's a temporary path. It, it's a temporary path. Now, to convert that into long growth, that's a whole lifestyle. That's, that's, that's the 24-7 work. So having done 20 years of deep work, having taken another 20 years to integrate, to write, what are you bringing? What is the message mm. of the diamond luminosity? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> you know... In broad outline, I did the work for 20 years, and it took me 10 years to recover from it. It took me 10 years to come away from such deep intimacy with the, the mind of the universe and dissolving into what I call the diamond luminosity, what Buddhism calls dharmakaya, you know, the, the clear light of absolute reality. To enter so deeply into that those domains and then to come back, and then when I stopped my sessions, it, it, it turned out to be much harder to come off the mountain than I anticipated. It turned out to be almost as hard coming off the mountain as it was going up the mountain. So it took me 10 years to fall to become really grounded, not grounded, happy inside time and space because I had pushed so deeply into the great expanse, maybe too far. But to be grounded, and then it took me 10 years to write the book. And so I had, a, I had to process these sessions. I'd, I had recorded them, and I always was thinking about them, always processing, but it took me a long time to sort of figure out what the deep structure of the sessions were. And I found the more I looked at them, the more I saw that there was a, it was like there was a curriculum in the work always. The, the one session began more or less where the previous session stopped. There was a continuity, but it's, it's like keeping a dream journal. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not obvious what that continuity is, what the developmental is. But when you really step back and look at a long series of dreams, you realize that while they're all doing different things at different levels, there's a conversation taking place, which is deepening. And that's the way it was for me in the sessions. It took me really years to sort of sort it out. But the other thing that happened, and part of the, the 10 years of recovery was, uh, I didn't live in San Francisco where these type of conversations take place. I lived in Ohio where these conversations were not allowed to take place. And I taught at a main, you know, mainstream university where I was not allowed to have these conversations. I taught about psychedelic research. I taught Stan Groff's work but I wasn't allowed to own my own work. And uh, if, you can't, if you can't talk about your sessions, if you can't, I mean, I'm a philosopher. I wanted to do this work for philosophical purposes. But if you can't talk about it, how are you going to do philosophy of psychedelics? And I found that cumulatively, that sickness, I entered what I call a sickness of silence. Because if you're living in a psychedelic closet, it's just as damaging as if you're living in any other closet where you can't be your whole and complete self to the people that you love and you care about. If you're hiding part of your life, you can't be whole. And I could not integrate my psychedelic work into my professional life. And actually, it's been the writing, the first step of integration for me was actually writing the book so that I could be my whole and complete self. But I had to wait until after I stopped teaching, after I was retired from the university. And I had to wait until I was after past the statute of limitations for my psychedelic crimes uh, so that I could talk about these things without fear of criminal prosecution. When you get to be an old people, they don't, old man, they don't bother, about, bother you anymore. They don't come after you, you know. But it takes time. You, in fact, when I was writing the book, how the sessions began to live in me changed 
when I was, began to go public with my experiences, I found that <clears throat> my psychedelic history began to congeal inside my psyche differently than when I wasn't speaking about them. And this has begun a process, and honestly, I don't know where it's going to go. I think three or five years from now, I might be living in a very different space because not being able to talk about your experiences, not to be able to share them, and to be able to take in other people's experiences so that we have this conversation going, that really kind of, uh, it throws a wrench into the integration process. So I, this wrench has been removed with the writing of the book, but where it's going to go, I don't know. I'm so excited for you. It's wonderful to have your contribution, your presence here today. This uh, amazing work that you've done with such dedication, record keeping, um, such profound investigation in order to share. And, um, and you wrote four books that were directly or indirectly I mean, they were directly informed by it, uh, even though this one is the only one that directly addressed the topic. Yeah. All my work has come out of the psychedelic work. And they are, and you can feel it. They are deeply um, meaningful. And so you have built a wonderful career and have done a lot of contribution through your teachings, through your writing. Thank you. And so I'm very excited mm -hmm. for you to be here today and for what this... Um, where future where you will go the you see i'm really really excited about where psychedelics are now because <clears throat> we're back into the we really are harnessing the therapeutic potential of these substances and and it's really really important that we do that and it's and that we do it well and systematically so that we don't run into some of the problems we ran into before but sooner or later if you're harnessing psychedelics potential to heal the human psyche then it's only a matter of time before you get deeper and deeper and deeper. It's just a matter of time before you begin to realize the philosophical potential, the cosmological potential. You know, this, and this reaches far beyond therapy. And psychedelics begin in therapy, but they don't stop in therapy. They just keep going and going. So they have yeah. a potential for the healing of the collective? <clears throat> they do. They do. And to change our dialogue with, our communion with, our absorption, with all the layers of intelligence that are the transcendent layers, layers and layers and layers of intelligence, ultimately of, I think, ultimately of a unified field, a unified life form. Just, and to be able to, and now, <clears throat> you have to be, be ready if... I don't know why anybody would want to be more conscious. Because if you start to become more conscious, there's a price to pay. It hurts. And once you become to be, start to be more conscious, it changes the course of things. And I think of psychedelics as hyper-concentrators of consciousness. They, they, they invite you to become more conscious. That's a very, very demanding course because once you become more conscious, you start to live in a different world. And when you live in a different world, then <clears throat> you're dancing a different dance. And every session is basically fueling that increase in consciousness. So, and I really wonder whether I didn't push it harder than was good for me. I push it hard, and that's why I really don't recommend this particular strategy. I would be, knowing what I know today, I would be much gentler on myself. I would not put the pedal of the metal and hammer down at 600 micrograms for 70 sessions. I would be much more nuanced. I would work with a, a spectrum of psychedelics. I would work with psilocybin more and ayahuasca more. I would vary low dose and, and high dose. I think there's, there's much more nuance you know, in the process, I would do it differently. But I think if you're working, if you have a solid spiritual practice and you're working with psychedelics in a responsible way and you're, you're working conscientiously, there are times when high-dose work can really lift you in a different level of engagement. Yeah. Thank you, Chris, thank you. so much for being here today, for answering the questions. I want to thank you, everybody, for being here yes. today at CIS.
Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.